I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Levin. I'm a grief therapist and the founder of From Grief to Growth, the host of the podcast Untethered, Healing the Pain from a Sudden Death, and I'm the creator and author of the Growing After Traumatic Loss course. I provide support, guidance, and teachings to help you with the aftermath of chaos, trauma, and grief. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Untethered, Healing the Pain from a Sudden Death. I'm Dr. Jennifer Levin, and I specialize in traumatic death and helping individuals through the struggles, pain, trauma, and chaos of an unexpected death. Today's podcast is the first in our new format. Going forward, I plan to interview professionals who work in the field of sudden or unexpected death. I'm also going to interview individuals who've experienced a sudden death themselves so they can share their experiences with you. In today's interview, I am going to be talking with Dr. Ted Reinierson, who has experienced both a sudden death himself and is a professional in the field of mental health. Dr. Reinierson is a semi-retired clinical psychiatrist and researcher from Seattle, Washington, where he founded the section of psychiatry at the Mason Clinic. In addition to his full-time clinical practice, he has served as a clinical director of the faculty at the University of Washington. For over 20 years, Dr. Reinierson has maintained a particular clinical interest and a research focus on the effects of violent death on family members. He's been published in clinical papers, written book chapters, and published three books, The Retelling of Violent Death, Violent Death, Resilience, Intervention, Beyond the Crisis, and The Restorative Nature of Ongoing Connections with the Deceased. He has delivered numerous national and international trainings on the management of the clinical effects of violent death. And with grant support, he founded the nonprofit organization, the Violent Death Bereavement Society. He's established an informative network for service providers, teachers, and researchers of traumatic grief after violent death. He's also developed a collaborative training program for Israeli and Palestinian clinicians in supporting members of their communities with traumatic grief associated with violent death. Currently, Dr. Reinierson is spearheading a grief companioning program for individuals who've experienced a traumatic loss or violent death so that they can receive no-cost support to help guide them through their grief journey. Finally, Dr. Reinierson lives in Puget Sound and enjoys hiking and spending time with his family. I want to say that I'm proud to be a volunteer in Dr. Reinierson's companioning program that he's working on right now, and I've had the absolute pleasure to get to know him, to work beside him, and to learn from him. So with that, let's get our interview started. 
Welcome, Dr. Reinerson. I am so pleased to have you here today. And I think the first question I would like to ask you is, how did you get into the field of sudden and unexpected loss? Well, uh, first of all, it's very unusual that a psychiatrist uh, has been involved in this whole area of of, uh, grief. I think in part because um, grief, as I see it, is more of a an adjustment, uh, a rite of passage, uh, than it is a psychiatric uh, disorder. So it's uh, it's an adjustment I've always been interested in because that's been my primary interest in psychiatry going back, my God, 60 years uh, ago when I began my uh, began my training. And in that era. Um, Adjustment and psychodynamics was uh, was really emphasized in the uh, in the training. We, we certainly were neurobiologically based uh, in psychiatry in the '60s and '70s, but we also spent a lot of time getting to know patients and getting to know what their stories were and what. Uh, what sort of situational factors had uh, impacted them. And I was always much more interested in that aspect of psychiatry than I was in terms of diagnosing a uh, disorder. And in the course 60s and 70s, there were about half as many psychiatric diagnoses as there are now. There are too many as I I see it. Um, So I had early on a a particular interest in listening. Um, I started off my training, my graduate training in neurology for six months and then switched uh, back into psychiatry. Um, Because I I enjoyed listening to people's uh, stories, that's what I found most uh, riveting. And then helping them to enlarge and deepen that uh, story so that they could somehow change themselves within it. Um, and of course, there are lots lots of models to help with that in terms of, of psychotherapy. But my experience with grief therapy, uh, that was not an important part of our of my training in it, at any rate. And there was very little research that had gone on uh, in the 60s and 70s when I was uh, training. There was, of course, Kubler-Ross uh, model, which was popularized in the 60s, and I think was very useful, uh, but very misleading uh, in terms of grief occurring in specific stages. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I knew about Freud's seminal uh, study on pathologic grief, Um which I think still holds a lot of water. Mm-hmm. They're very helpful models. Mm-hmm. And then they, uh, really the first study of grief after unnatural uh, dying was in the Coconut Grove Fire, Lindemann in uh, 1943. Um, that was also um, 
turned into a monumental sort of story that's a study that's always quoted. Uh, and maybe I could talk a bit more about uh, about that about Alexandra Adler, who uh, was at another hospital in Boston. She was uh, Alfred Adler's daughter. Please. And she had uh, completed a much better study than Lindemann did. Lindemann was very psychoanalytic, and she was not. So she focused much more on the trauma of the dying than she did on the dying, on the death itself. And what got me, I think, intrigued in uh, this whole area of traumatic grief was a, a personal experience, which I, I'd be glad to talk about. You want me to get into that at this point? or Sure. I think that would be very helpful for our listeners. Um, it was after my training uh, in the early 70s that I moved to uh, Seattle to start a section of psychiatry at a sort of the Mayo Clinic of the Pacific Northwest. It was then. There were nearly 100 of us on the specialists on the staff. And I wanted to practice in a place where I could still be a doctor. Uh, but I also had a shared appointment at the University of Washington in the Department of Psychiatry because my interest in teaching. So I had a lot of residents who were working with me as well at that point. And shortly after Julie and I arrived in uh, Seattle in 1972 with our two preschool kids, we decided to have a third child. And um, Julie went through a very, very significant postpartum uh, depression. I pretty much had to work, cut back work half time to take care of Julie and now three kids, uh, Wendy, our infant daughter, uh, who tragically um, died a month after she was uh, born from an intracranial hemorrhage. And uh, a week later, when this was layered on, uh, on uh, Julie's postpartum depression and she was seeing a psychiatrist and on medication, uh, she killed herself. So where before I'd been an empathic a clinician, I knew a bit about grief and emphasized and reinforced the importance of time and working through dynamically these major kind of changes. I found myself going through becoming a much uh, more of a participant observer than than a psychiatrist. Uh, and I think what got me interested in traumatic grief was experiences that I was having that did not fit with the models I was familiar with. The, um, there are basically two stories that go on after a, any kind of grief. One is the story of the relationship and the other is the story of the dying itself. And they both have to be retold. And obviously the story of a violent, sudden, unnatural dying is very different than the story of a natural dying. Of course. If Julia died from, oh, she died from a, a leukemia. That's something that could have been announced. And it's something I would have understood as a 
form of dying that was external to her. Uh, no, well, external in the in the sense that we were going to have an opportunity to adjust to it. Mm -hmm. But the dying itself was internal and biologic, and it was no one's fault, mm -hmm. and it wasn't stigmatized, and it's something that we anticipate dying from eventually is some sort of biologic death, mm -hmm. either from cancer or stroke or a vascular problem or just senescence, just wearing out. Mm -hmm. So I found myself going through vivid flashbacks of what she had experienced as she was dying. I was, uh, it was surreal because I couldn't be there. Right. So this was an imaginal replay of what she was thinking, what she was feeling, uh, how I might have intervened. There was no role for me in that unnatural dying. And it's one of the that differentiates it from natural time. She died from a leukemia. I would have had time to have understood what was going on in terms of the dying itself. We would have had opportunity to prepare ourselves and our children and uh, her friends and her relatives could have ringed around her. Mm -hmm. We could have gone through a, um, a natural dying story that would have had some sort of role in me, for me, in the dying story. But there was no role when she committed suicide, because I was not about to go along with that, obviously. Right. Made no, there was something so pathologic going on with, with, uh, with Julie and that, the way that she died, that, uh, that it was traumatic. And it occurred as a visual flashback. I was having panic attacks in the middle of the night when I would dream about it. It was a story I couldn't uh, tolerate starting because I knew how it would end. Hmm. Uh, and I think for for me and the vast majority of family members after there's been a violent uh, death, this begins to subside spontaneously within the first several months, mm -hmm. and it doesn't require any sort of formal intervention. I never went through any sort of formal intervention. I think that the uh, that's not because of my strength. I think it was also, a, a, well, a part of that is can be contribu uh, attributed to my rather privileged background and not having any uh, sort of significant psychiatric uh, problem before this, but the the other thing was that at that time of my life, I didn't have time to consider myself. I didn't need therapy. I needed a plan. I needed some practical way to survive mm -hmm. this. And we call it psychological first aid now. Right. It wasn't called anything then. And I found that the, my, my major source of resilience were my kids. I had to be strong for them. I'd take care of my kids. How old? Make sure they were going to be all right. How old were they at the time? Five and three. And uh, so we spent a lot of time together. And uh, we spent as much time as the children uh, needed to talk about Julie. And I certainly brought it up uh, fairly frequently, but 
obviously the three-year-old and the five-year-old handle it in a much different way. Absolutely. My three-year-old handled it quite magically. Um, so I wrote, uh, I initially began uh, serving as a volunteer for a lot of the support groups in in Seattle where I was, uh, where I had some connections. And then I got interested in the, the importance of screening people before they got into any sort of support group. And I've, I've really enjoyed group therapy ever since my, uh, my training. And in the 60s and 70s, we, we used group therapy for everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there were a lot more active sort of groups going on then, at least in terms of training. So I thought it was very, really important that people be carefully screened to make sure that they had mastered enough of the traumatic story of the dying that they wouldn't get up and run out of the group because they couldn't tolerate other people's trauma stories because they were having a hard time managing their own flashbacks Mm -hmm. and dreams. So it's really important, I thought, to stabilize people after a violent death to the trauma of the dying uh, before you began working on their grief reaction. So that that was something that began to occur t- uh, to me because of my personal experience. Uh, and then beginning to apply some of those insights into developing a, a short-term, focused, manualized uh, intervention, uh, group intervention, that uh, we first wrote the manual in uh, uh, around 2000, so, uh, so a little over 20 years ago. Wow. And uh, it's been one of the one of the few manualized interventions for traumatic grief. And uh, recently, we've done pre, we have three post measures on over 300 subjects that have gone through the intervention so that we've sort of entered the kingdom of the evidence-based the last four or five years. But my work prior to that has been much more anecdotal and based on some of my insights and and working with people over over time. You said that um, group work is magical. Can you talk a little bit more about that? It's very different, I think, than... Um, on several different levels than individual work. It's uh, it's difficult to set up a group after uh, traumatic grief because I think you have to be in a large enough community uh, and have developed a, a center that reinforces this, that this clinical interest. So people are calling in and asking for a rather specialized uh, uh, group Group is individual, uh, different than individual therapy, I think, because uh, rather than the relationship being dyadic between the therapist and the, the patient, uh, it's much richer than that. If the group is running well uh, and they aren't interrupting one another and everybody has, has time not only to detail their own story and their own feelings, 
uh, and their own progress, but they have an opportunity to help each other. And I think that that's an important resource for resilience, hmm. uh, is that not only is your story being processed in a natural sort of format, I mean, this has gone on for thousands of years after there's been any kind of death, particularly a violent death, it's people getting together and needing to talk about it over and over again. Not everyone. There's some, some people that want to get through it or need to get through it in a much more stoic way. And uh, that's not to be challenged. That over time seems to, to uh, be restorative for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> George Bonanno's work with Natural Dine uh, at Columbia is really highlighted. Only about half the people go through a very significant interval of distress after there's been a natural uh, I think it's probably higher than that after a, a violent. Yeah. Um, so that I think uh, roof gets you out of that di- dyadic frame into uh, something that offers a lot more opportunity, not only in telling, but in helping. Um and of course, the other thing that I emphasize, which is particularly fascinating to me about grief, is that once you begin getting engaged in, with someone and their grief, it's not just two of you in the conversation. There are at least three. The people that died, the person who died, sometimes people. So that um, whatever setting you're in, this this person begins to appear to some extent. To some extent, their memory does. And uh, the importance of including the voice of that uh, person in in some way. And of course, there are, this has gone on for many many years. A lot of t- uh, techniques to the empty chair uh, sort of technique. and um, Bob Niemeyer writes about this prolifically. Lots of different ways of uh, including the presence of the, of the person that's, uh, that's died. I'm so glad you brought that up. I often feel like I develop a relationship with the individual who's died through the therapeutic process. I feel like I get to know them. Um, and there's often a sadness that I didn't get to meet the individual because of the way that they're described uh, by their loved one. And um, I feel very connected to that person. I get to see videos and pictures and artifacts. And I I really feel like I, I get to know them. And um, I'm glad you really, you mentioned that. How did your personal story, your personal experience change you both as a clinician or motivate you as a researcher? Well, I think it, uh, it made me much more tolerant for ambiguity. Um, I think if someone is uh, handicapped as a therapist, if they're uh, setting out with some sort of a rigid model or protocol uh, when they're trying to help 
uh, and guide someone through a, a story of of death or of a, or a violent death. Um, I never know what to to expect, and and maybe that's because I've been doing this for over fifty years that I'm I'm much more uh, I'm much more comfortable with uh, the unexpected and hmm. with the capacity to be surprised, and also what I call a vigilance for novelty, trying to find something new and uh, different in a story, a different sort of an approach as the person is telling it so that you don't get completely absorbed in in the way that they're processing uh, uh, things. Um, also, uh, I think it's made me much more respectful of psychodynamic work than uh, neurobiology. There is no pill for grief. Uh, there have yeah. been a couple of rigorous, well-controlled, prospective studies that have been done, most recently by Kathy Shear and four or five other people, uh, with over 200 uh, family members who had lost someone through suicide. Very carefully designed study where they gave uh, medication and uh, compared that with active psychotherapy and compared with just plain support where people were coming in once a week and being checked on by somebody that wasn't really doing active therapy. And what, what, uh, what was established was uh, the pills don't work. They have no effect on the grief itself. It helps with depression, helps with anxiety, but those sorts of disorders. So that's something that's been confirmed recently. And I think it's an important confirmation because there's a distressing number of people that are on antidepressants that come in to see us mm-hmm. when there's really no indication for their being on them. And it's it's sometimes a real task to get them to be able to stop uh, taking them. I don't think the medication interferes with the therapy, but I think it's a uh, clinical negligence for people with grief reactions to be started by their primary uh, physician on antidepressants and not uh, go through some sort of psychotherapy. Okay. Let me ask you, um, looking back over your career, you're semi-retired now, correct? Yes, ma'am. Looking back over your career, um, what would you say are some of your greatest accomplishments in your work? Well, that's that's hard for me to it's hard for me to say. I I can tell you what I uh, the way I started and what I was hoping for. Um, I began getting funding in 1993 from the Department of Justice through VOCA. Uh, what does that stand? OVC oh, okay. Office of Victims of Crime. You know that's implemented through all 50 states, through a different agency in each state. Right. And I went out to, and I gave, gave a talk uh, at the Department of Justice headquarters to show them how I've been using their money since 1993. And they gave me a Promising Practice uh, Award, which allowed me to bring clinicians in from other 
uh, sites across the United States for five years. And I had a four-day training program and would bring in teams from uh, New York and uh, San Diego and Houston and almost every major, a lot of major cities. And uh, I was, of course, focused on some of my psychiatric uh, friends who were dealing with trauma uh, to bring in uh, their clinicians to teach them our intervention to see whether or not it could be replicated. Uh, interestingly, it's the academic centers that I uh, encourage to come in and get trained and propagate uh, the, the intervention didn't uh, weren't nearly as productive as the clinicians who were already engaged and often women and often social workers and uh, rather than psychiatrists uh, or PhD psychologists. I think it's, uh, it's rare that psychiatrists are even doing this uh, sort of work. So uh, that shaped and shaded a lot of the hopes that I, uh, that I had. The other project that I got very enthused about was uh, an international project where the University of Washington Department of Psychiatry uh, and also the, uh, the Middle Eastern uh, Studies Group at the University of Washington got very interested in what I was doing and began sending me over to the Middle East to train clinicians uh, in the Middle East. Uh, I wasn't doing direct clinical work, but mm -hmm. I was working with, I spent uh, almost two weeks in Gaza and I also spent time in uh, Jordan and in Lebanon and in Syria uh, and Israel, wow. uh, trying to uh, actually through the uh, university we were able to to uh, translate our manualized intervention into Arabic and Hebrew so that. Uh, they had access to the manual before I even went over for the training. So I had hoped to to work out some sort of an ongoing project after those five years, where they would be uh, using the uh, the intervention that had been translated into their own language. And of course, there are huge cultural differences between what we're doing here in the United States and what goes on in a Muslim country. I learned a lot. <laughs> I bet. Uh, but a lot, a lot of what I set up has fragmented, I think, because of of what's gone on in that part of the of the world. But I think I'm still in touch with several of the clinicians that are running our groups. Uh, um, That's amazing. If I can ask you one final question. Uh, most of my listeners have recently experienced a sudden death. What type of advice, having, having been through this yourself, would you give to somebody who has a long road of healing ahead of them? Well, one of the first things that I would want to reassure them about is, well, don't be in a hurry. I think the best prospective study that's been on, done on violent death was done by Shirley Murphy here at the University of Washington School of Nursing. She had an NIH grant 
she studied over 200 parents who had lost a child to a violent death in Oregon and in Washington. And it was a naturalistic community-based study. These were not people asking for help. And she got a very high um, rate of people that were willing to go along with the with the study. I think it was a bit over 60%. And what she established, and, and she's followed this cohort for five years, and what she established on the basis of a standardized measure that she sort of constructed was that within the first year, there was a dramatic decrease in the level of distress with mothers and fathers. Fathers more than mothers in terms of the decrease in uh, distress. But that level of distress never really changes. Even at five years, a third of the mothers that have lost a child to a violent death still report a traumatic sort of aftermath when they're asked directly about it. Does that mean that they have a PTSD? No, I don't think so. Surely thought so. Surely Murphy, the author. I I think that's normative. I mean, this was a, based on a population of people that weren't asking for help. And they weren't disabled at five years by their traumatic aftermath. It's when they were asked directly about the, the dying that they still had uh, a lot of trauma associated with it. So you're, this isn't anything that anybody gets over quickly and that should not be the objective and and some people are able to coast out of this much more quickly than others. But I think mothers are, are particularly vulnerable when it, there's been a death of a child violently. In part, I think, because of the level of attachment, which began even before the child was born, uh, in terms of all of the nonverbal, um, imaginal sort of attachment that was going to, and more than imaginal, once there was quickening. And all that goes on, I think, presumably more with mothers than with, with fathers in terms of the feeding, the proximity, the cleaning, all of the nonverbal um, sorts of engagement that's that's going on that makes the the whole issue of safety and proximity much more central, I think, for mothers or can be right. than it is for fathers. Um, so, I think whenever uh, a, a child leaves home, no matter the age of the child, if the mother gets word that the child is at age 50 or 60. <laughs> I'm talking about the child. It's still upset. Absolutely. And, uh, so don't, so don't be in a hurry. I know I have also a lot of people who've lost spouses, but in terms of general loss, sudden death altogether, don't be in a hurry. What else would you tell them? I think, uh, there have to be definite indications for getting therapy. And if, you're, if you've decided you want therapy, the importance of investigating who is going to be appropriate to help you. Now, particularly if there's been a violent death, I think it's important to see somebody that knows something about what I've tried to structure for you in terms of the, the separateness of the violent dying story from the story of the 
of the living and the importance of being able to stabilize yourself and to to begin managing the Vylandine's story in a more restorative way before you get into the grief. And sometimes if you're seeing a grief therapist that's not familiar with this, they, they immediately want you to begin getting engaged in the grief therapy of letting go of the, uh, the memories of the, of the person, not to surrender them entirely, but to talk more about the relationship with when really what you need to talk about if you're having flashbacks and dreams and panic attacks is work that's directed at that, uh, that unfinished uh, story. Uh, I think companioning is, is uh, important as well. Um, I think a, a support group for, for violent dying is supportive because people are able to get it into a context where they're able to talk about something that, that's so sometimes so horrific and so helpless that it's only people that have been through it themselves that uh, can quietly listen but resonate uh, what they've been through to respect it to to make it real because what they what they've gone through is so surreal. So uh, I think having the opportunity of of talking with others, others outside the family, sometimes the family can no longer tolerate yeah. uh, hearing about what's going on. Needs, needs somebody outside. Uh, so I think I think this group is lucky to have someone like you, uh, who probably I'm I'm sure knows people in the, the, the community that would be uh, appropriate. But I think you need to really be uh, somewhat disabled um, by flashbacks and by dreams and by every single day. Uh, feeling despair uh, over this and not not being able to summon anything positive around which you can begin reaching out again to to reconnect with living. I think that's when when therapy should be uh, considered and not necessarily in the first several weeks. I think people, particularly after violent death, are so preoccupied with all that needs to be done, that it takes all our energy just to, to get through the investigation and sometimes the trial. And uh, It's only four to six months after a violent death that people are in a position where they can begin summoning what they need personally. Yeah. Uh, so it's always different. Absolutely. Well, I cannot thank you enough for your time today and your expertise. Well, goodness, that went quickly. It did, and guidance. And I really appreciate you sharing um, your personal story. I think it always is so helpful to an audience when they are able to hear the personal story behind any health professional who um, has really gone through something traumatic that has influenced the work that they have done. So thank you again for your time. And um, with that, we are going to um, end our interview. In today's interview with Dr. Reinerson, we learned both about his personal history with sudden death 
and the diverse projects and activities he has conducted to advance knowledge and the treatment for individuals who he describes as having experienced a violent death, which includes homicide, suicide, or accidents. Dr. Reinierson talked about some of his major accomplishments as a psychiatrist and as a researcher. He talked about how his personal experience with sudden death changed him as a clinician, and he shared his advice for listeners who are living in the aftermath of a sudden death. My next podcast will be on Wednesday, October 26, and I will be talking with Dolores Cruz, who's going to share her story with us. I worked with Dolores when her son Eric died over five years ago in a car accident. Dolores has done so many things to work through her grief, and now she's a vital part of the healing experience for many people who are grieving the death of a child. I hope you can join us. Thank you so much for joining today's episode of Untethered, Healing the Pain After a Sudden Death. For help with sudden and unexpected loss, please sign up for my free mini course where I will talk and share with you the three truths about living with a sudden and unexpected loss. Please visit my website from grieftogrowth.com to sign up. Bye for now. Thank you for listening today. Be sure to subscribe to my podcast so you never miss an episode. For help with a sudden and unexpected loss, sign up for my free mini course where I will teach you the three truths about living with a sudden and unexpected loss. Please visit www.fromgrieftogrowth.com to sign up.